When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, folks. Welcome to AYT number 173. I just wanted to jump on mic before we start the show proper and give a quick shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which again comes from our friends at the Criterion Collection. Uh, these, uh, what more do I need to say about the Criterion Collection? Uh, fan- movie lovers know them well and appreciate at least some aspect of their work, if not all the elements. And that includes their, their awesome DCP, uh, filmic theatrical restorations, their Blu-rays, Uh, And of course, the streaming that they provide at Filmstruck. So lots of options to catch that massive library of Criterion titles. Don't forget all those. Um, And I want to give a shout out specifically to a Blu-ray release that I cannot wait to see called The Color of Pomegranates. It's a 1969 film from, uh, I believe it's a Georgian film. And uh, it's considered a classic by a lot of uh, friends and colleagues I have in the uh, art house world. So um, can't wait to catch up with this one, and now I can because of Criterion's new Blu-ray. So if you're interested in that, look out for it. Now on to the show. Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate And maybe tell you about Phaedra and how she gave me life. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, uh, you know, I, I feel like usually we're, we're pretty, we're pretty, you know, happy, sprightly bunch. So we, we get pretty down. affable. Well, yeah. you more than me, but uh, yeah, usually we can get through the Joe. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you, Eric? Good. And like, that's, it's all automated for the most part, but, um, both of us are, you know, going through it at the moment. So, um, I feel like this is a perfect time to discuss the filmmaker. We are discussing, uh, Lynn Ramsey and her new, um, I don't know. I feel like I can say it without being hyperbolic. Her masterpiece, uh, You Were Never Really Here, as well as her her previous work that's led her up to this one. Because uh, she's somebody who always has depicted people going through it. Like, uh, really just, like, in the mix of something, like, really overwhelming and kind of, like, borderline hallucinatory with how the film approaches, like the headspace of someone going through something truly like traumatic and overwhelming. Mm. And um, yeah, her, uh, her new film starring Joaquin Phoenix uh, last year at con or cans, you know, we can never decide. That's uh, <laughs> that's something that this show will never rest on how to pronounce that fucking festival's name, <laughs> but uh, one best screenplay, best actor for Joaquin Phoenix and, uh, you know, you and I have been big proponents of hers. And in fact, like our, our uh, 
our launch episode, which was a countdown of the top 10 movies of 2011, as we started this podcast in 2012, uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Her last film before this one was, uh, I think, featured pretty highly up on my top 10 list at that point. Same with mine. It was on mine. onto your list mm-hmm. the next year, right? Yep. That's Oh, that's right. It was one of those stupid when you got to see it before me. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. That's always stupid when I get to see it before you. It's not fair. <laughs> we, we always need to be seeing it, you know, like samesies, same time. But um, he's, she's somebody who has like, um, we've discussed her on, I think, like a previous, I mean, we discuss her a lot. She, she crops up a lot as like a filmmaker we're continuously excited about. And she's one of those like, you know, kind of precious filmmakers who like, doesn't work that often, but what she does, like the film leaves like a, just a seismic impact. Mm. And, um, she first came onto the scene with her, um, her like first film rat catcher, which I think came out in like 2000, 2001 for, for us. But yeah, 99 in the UK is 99. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and then her follow-up film, Morvern Caller, uh, you know, like just, uh, brought brought Samantha Morton that much like higher up in my um you know in my in my status love her <laughs> I already loved her and like you know couldn't love her anymore after that movie true and then but like there's as much as there's not that big of a gap between those movies um like after that we need to talk about Kevin pretty big gulf you know and then between we need to talk about Kevin and now it's also a pretty sizable gulf so she's like a filmmaker who whose films are always like impactful, but like, you know, she's, she's not as consistently kind of on the radar as a lot of people who are, you know, quote unquote working all the time. Mm. And like, you know, like her films are a lot to kind of like pick through and like, and mull over. And like, I was grateful to, after seeing the film at a press screening to almost immediately see it again when it opened down here at the Cinerama dome, just to, you know, like I knew it was fresh enough that I was going to be able to discuss it without seeing it twice, but just to like a film so dense, even in it's like brief running time, a film like with so much like visceral kind of like overload, you know, and like, I think we're the way we're going to describe her work. It's going to be another one of those things where like you and I adore this filmmaker, but the way you kind of have to describe it is going to be off putting to casual viewers. Like, <laughs> yeah. Overload. I don't know. Or like difficult. I don't know. Traumatizing. Jesus Christ. Like, I don't I want to be entertained. <laughs> and like, that's the thing is like these movies are propulsive. They are like vivid and visionary. And like, even though she doesn't have like a shtick or a gimmick, but every one of her films is identifiably all her own. Like it's just like the, the way it's written her like sense of editing has gotten so like razor sharp in her last two movies, like the spell it casts her use of sound, which like you brought to my attention, uh, I think off mic a couple weeks ago that sound was something that she started playing with uh, in the pre-production phase of you were never really here. Mm-hmm. And it might be just a sort of like tactic and approach she uses all the time, but just her sense of like experimentation. And, uh, but like, I, I think I talked to you about this, about that there's like a looseness and an almost improvisational quality to how things are assembled puzzle piece style. 
but then there's a brutal precision to how moments play against each other in the editing, in the sound design. So like she, I don't know, she's incredible to me. So I don't know. Why don't we, uh, why don't we start with like where we first kind of encountered her, you know, like yeah. in, in our, our film going. Yeah. I think that's, it's a great place because there's just so much to talk about her, even though, she's only made four films in like already like mm-hmm. a kind of a 20 year span of a career. At least <clears throat> she's been making yeah. movies since the mid nineties or short films right. and stuff. And uh, I, I think at some point, a few of the projects that didn't work out for her need to come up because that's uh, something we've discussed in prior episodes back in the day. Early AYT mm-hmm. was like a project that didn't uh, happen for her. And I think it explains some of these long gaps for, for a filmmaker that is so immensely talented, it's you and I are not the only people uh, that are film lovers that just adore this this director. <clears throat> but she, like so many other directors we love, struggle to even get these things off the goddamn ground. And um, yeah, it, her movies are challenging when they get to theaters, but it's challenging even for her to get them made. So um, you know, whatever anybody can do or we can do to like support her is like you know we we got to do it, but. Uh, for for me, I think when I caught up with her was after I caught up with um, Rat Catcher and Morvan Collar on DVD. I think when I was still getting uh, the early days of Netflix, when they just mailed you the DVDs, I, I mm-hmm. having that access to kind of anything she had just started. Yeah. to come, Yeah. And I started to really read because of like getting access to like uh, articles from from critics that are kind of going to festivals around the world, I was starting to, to kind of become aware of movies that just weren't on my radar earlier in, uh, in my life. So I, I made sure to rent uh, Morvan Collar and Ratcatcher and they are difficult movies to watch on a smaller screen on a not great DVD. But nonetheless, I was completely taken by the style, the way these stories were told and um, the, the sensual, the sensuality of, of her filmmaking. Uh, uh, I know that's something that's come up on this podcast that we've talked about other filmmakers and even her, uh, what is it to be a sensual filmmaker? And it's, it's, it's kind of literal. Like she hones in on the, the sensory things that images sound, uh, editing all these elements, the technical tools of filmmaking can do to make you to kind of create or immerse you into a world. And, um, another thing she, I, I realized right away uh, when I caught up with Ratcatcher and Mormon Caller for the first time was uh, this is a filmmaker with a very distinct perspective. And also, mm-hmm. you know, probably because she's a, a woman, uh, she has a different perspective on stories that we've seen typically handed, handled by men. And I, uh, I think that makes her just inherently original and unique, but... Um, beyond that, I, I just was like, so clearly this is a filmmaker that knows what they, how they want to tell the story. And she really focuses on character studies and people and really does something that I love, love, love about film is put you in that literal headspace of a character. And, um, while Ratcatcher does that, Morvan Keller absolutely does that. We need to talk about Kevin does it with a few characters uh, we we were never really here. I think why it is. I, I've only got to see it once so far, but I I think when I get to see it again and probably again and again, it will become my favorite to this point. Uh, and I will also think it's her masterpiece because 
that is just part of what makes it great. But you were never really here is just like one of the most uh, densely packed, as you said, just perfectly like, ah, it's just so um, confidently assembled yet original and takes chances yet it, it just distills down what makes her great as a filmmaker into a really really tight uh visceral experience and uh you know yeah we're using a lot of verbs and adjectives here that are going to scare off people or just turn them off from this movie but um hopefully we can keep you listening and convince you because she is worth diving into and taking the chance on because she will, you will just feel something, you know, there's just there. It's like her films operate on feeling and emotion and, um, logic doesn't have to necessarily be there. It's not about that. Um, I love all that right. about her. I love the way she swirls all these ideas in my head. And also I get the, the immersive experience every time I watch her. So, um, I have a lot of effect. I, I have a crush on this director. Like, I just think she's awesome. And uh, you, you, we all, I think we get this about directors that we like, but I, I just, I think she's awesome and continues to get better and better as a filmmaker. So yeah. Um, I was a big fan pretty early on, even though, uh, I've since been able to enjoy watching those early films more and more. And, um, her movies all pr- really reward, uh, they're very rewatchable. If you're willing to go down those dark places and revisit the yeah. challenging aspects, she's just endlessly rewarding uh, to revisit these movies and glean more from them every time. Well, I think that like the, the more that, you know, there's just like constant content and just like information, just overloading all the time that like, there's so many things competing for our attention. You like a viewer starts to disengage to some extent in order to like kind of like take it all in, you know, in order to to, or be able to take in more. So they start to watch experience, listen to things on autopilot, which like you can't really do with Lynn Ramsey because it is a second to second experience. And like uh, I know that like when I was texting you about my initial kind of like reaction to you were never really here, um, the just the sense of energy in the edits, like in especially in like throughout the whole film, but in the first opening like couple of minutes where it's like one image will just be juxtaposed with another that it cuts to with a sound and it's just so startling and like you have to find your way through it. And it's planning you in the headspace of someone who is disordered by trauma, who's trying to cope with it. And so as you're piecing the story together, you're getting yanked in these odd directions. And so it's like a moment to moment thrilling experience of like, wow, this is really vivid, really like overwhelming and really like attentive to a truth that I think all of us experience. We've we've definitely all been through something really impactful and traumatic that like we can't seem to get past even though our everyday life is going on regardless. And like, that's what Joaquin Phoenix is dealing with. He plays a, you know, a, a basically he describes himself as a hired gun despite using a hammer um, who gets called into these situations where, you know, people need um, some sort of retaliation. He's o- oftentimes like uh, getting, children back from harm's way being sold into, you know, some like a nefarious underground of like slavery basically. 
And so he goes into like lurid situations, takes kids back. And he himself, as you're piecing together in the kind of like dizzying opening section of the movie, has undergone childhood trauma, trauma in his adult life. Uh, you know, he's been in the military and he's just somebody who like is the byproduct of awful things having happened to him. And he's just trying to put what he's been through to something that's like potentially useful. He's a broken person. He is a shattered human being. And like the, what she is so attentive to in the writing of this movie, in the execution of the movie, in the editing and the sound design is that like, that we've all been through something where we're like haunted by despite what's going on in the current moment, the movie pulls you into these like jarring, horrific nightmarish flashbacks that fragments and disorders the character's perspective. And it's just like, it's so, it's so heartfelt and visceral in its depiction of it. You know, that it's just like, there is a tremendous sensitivity without um, uh, a, what's the word? a sensitivity without a sentimentalism. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, it's not, it doesn't reassure you and sit you down and say like this, we all know that this is awful. It like really viscerally kind of like captures like what is awful. And like, and I think that is so attentive and probably hard for people who want to just coast on autopilot through a lot of the content they're taking in like movie, these you know, in, in a film like Morvern Caller, the main character doesn't behave logically the way most people would like to think they'd behave. <laughs> like that premise is, you know, it's, a, it's about a, a woman who finds that their lover has taken their own life and uh, she, you know, basically doesn't do anything about it, leaves the body in the apartment for at least a few days. Yeah. <laughs> I think that entry point into the story is immediately going to put people off where they're like, why doesn't she, why doesn't she call the fucking ambulance? Why doesn't, why doesn't they, why doesn't she have the body taken away? It's like, well, cause it's a different approach to like grief. Essentially grief knocks you out. It knocks you out of logic. It knocks you out of like, f- like functioning. And so like everything is in a weird in between haze basically. And like, that's what that movie captures beautifully. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin captures, you know, like the, the sense of like having witnessed and possibly been partially responsible for something really awful, like a tragedy. And then like as much as you were never really here takes place linearly, like it still has flashbacks, whereas like the disorder of we need to talk about Kevin is all over the place in terms of its timeline. Right. Because to have truly been traumatized by something you are outside of time, basically, you know, like you're the, the past is always with you surrounding you like a fucking haunted house when you're just trying to function in your everyday life. So her attentiveness to that, her sensitivity to that is like, it's really remarkable and really like, I think daunting to like, you know, unfortunately a lot of modern audiences, you know, who, you know, need to know who she is. (laughs) Cause like, this is what we like, urge people to keep alive in, you know, in cinema and like going to the movies. Agreed. Agreed. It's like, uh, just in a recent episode, you were, you made a, the really salient point about Steven Spielberg, how he always has this, um, he can't, 
escape himself. He always wants to play nice by the end. I really like the way you put it that way on the podcast. Yeah. And this is a director who refuses to play nice. She, she yeah. won't, as you said, she's not going to be sentimental. She's going to give you the hard truth of a subject, um, which to me, I inherently just, I just respect that the truth of it, right? There's, there's just no bullshit about it, but then she does it in such a poetic cinematic, often beautiful way. It, it, even though there are things and you were never really here and we need to talk about Kevin, you know, rewatching her movies upon, uh, you know, this new one coming out, there are these almost auteurist things that reoccur in her movies that, uh, I start to find really interesting where, Every movie has some sense of a character going through trauma, uh, going mm-hmm. through something. And it, there's each film has an act, at least an act of violence that has ripple effects. But also the movie refuses to be about just that. And I, yeah. something I love about her as a filmmaker is the way she finds other things to um, focus on. Maybe even in a two minute little offshoot of a scene that will eventually bring you back to, you know, she's not a traditional narrative storyteller, but there is an arc to all her movies. It'll, it'll always kind of bring you back, but there'll be these offshoots. So Ratcatcher has these wonderful moments where, uh, it's set in the seventies in Scotland in, uh, I think in Glasgow in like a really like a time where there were like these garbage strikes. So it's so visceral and to watch this film where you're like, you see the garbage piling up in this little community in this family that it's set around. And that movie starts. I forget every time I start to watch this movie, it's like, Oh yeah. Like it's not a spoiler. This movie starts with a young boy accidentally killing another boy. He, he pushes them into some disgusting water and the boy drowns. And the movie only deals with that for about, the first 15 or 20 minutes. And then the story really takes place. It's almost the prologue to introduce you to the actual main characters. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't like leave that aside because it can't deal with it. It wants you to see the ripple effects that happen after for a character like that. And Morvan Kyler is very similar to you were never really here in terms of what those characters are going through the, uh, in terms of the way they're dealing with the trauma and how it has thrown them askew. And, um, uh, uh, I just, I just love the way she can mix like such ugliness, such the realities, the, the often, um, unfortunate, ugly realities, or just sad elements in life that we do all go through. And you and I are in our own versions of that right now, where we're just, we're dealing with that in real life to actually go through it in cinematic storytelling from a great filmmaker is why is a big reason why I love going to the movies. It's not just to be entertained, you know, and that, that is the plea we're kind of putting out there. It's like, there is, there are more experiences to take from cinema that I actually would even file under entertainment because I, I'm entertained by her movies just in a different way. You know, like it's a different kind of entertainment. It's more artistically leaning, but there's so, um, there's just so much like nourishment in her movies without it ever feeling like you're eating your vegetables. Like she is not, she doesn't make festival movies and you know, that's a reductive term, but there are just movies that are a dime a dozen that play the circuit every year that some of them are fine. I'm sure. But like, it's easy to ignore these movies because they're kind of, they're just, they're a dime a dozen. She stands out in a pack like that always with every effort. And um, I just love seeing these reoccurring 
themes, these re- this reoccurring um, sort of putting you in a character's perspective that she is, locks into in her movies. Yeah. Um, but even reoccurring imagery, you know, Ratcatcher opens with this the this child um, wrapped up in a curtain. It's like a slow mo. You can't even you almost can't tell what you're looking at in the beginning of that film. And then the kid, it comes out of slow motion and the kid gets slapped by his mom and she's like, stop playing around. And it's something that you learn from about 10 seconds. It tells a a story about these people that like, oh, that kid must do that all the time. He probably wraps himself up in the curtain and the mom doesn't like it. She's so good at giving you more with less. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of cool to see in Ratcatcher because you were never really here opens with Joaquin Phoenix, one of the early shots is like him, this this sort of ritual he has where he tries to suffocate himself with a plastic bag. And it, it it's a similar sort of image. It locks you into this character, into this world, but it also tells you so much about him in many ways. He's suicidal, but also there's probably a hundred better ways to kill yourself than trying to suffocate. So he's more complicated than that. He doesn't just want to die. He's like a suicidal person that can't do it so to me i'm like wow what a complex character and it's been established in 15 seconds and it speaks to that razor sharp editing and filmmaking technique that you've been alluding to so i'm, I'm just constantly well, blown away by her um calm down eric um <laughs> just kidding but like i think as we're describing her you know work in it, her attentiveness to characters interior lives and like trauma there's something that reads as like harrowing about the experience. And like, of course, to people who consider themselves casual, I just want to be entertained film audiences. Um, like that's, that's off putting. Like, I don't want to go through something harrowing. The thing is a lot of her movies are fucking hilarious on yes. top of it. Like, yes. and you were never really here has plenty of just like plenty of like just straight up unusual moments that are like, they're really deeply funny. And then there are moments kind of like where we're talking about where, um, you know, like I saw it with a, a huge audience uh, in the, in the dome on Friday night, 600 plus people. And uh, there's like a scene where he, he's, he's basically taking care of his uh, ailing mother who is kind of slipping into dementia a little bit. And um, he has like a kind of comic conversation with her where she's kind of getting on his nerves and it cuts to him acting out this ritual where he's suffocating himself in the closet that beat that rhythm that's like inherently funny like i didn't laugh the first time i saw it but the whole audience like laughed because it was like he went it cuts from a sort of irritating conversation with his mother to him with a plastic bag over his head in the closet like that's just kind of innately darkly brutally comic and then it cuts to like uh, just a jarring, horrific sound and visual edit of him as a child trying to drown out his own mother being attacked by his father, the sort of looming, menacing phantom figure that's hinted at in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it like everyone's laughing gets cut short, like horrifically cut short. Like the whole audience is like, ha, ha. and like it just it was it was terrifying. But it's also just like, well, that's no accident. Like life hands you a myriad of different feelings sometimes all at once. And like she beautifully executes that in like so many of her films, so many of her films that like on paper seem to share 
like relationships with movies that you're familiar with. Like Rat Catcher is a coming of age movie. Morvern Cowler is like no, a road movie. Like, <laughs> a re- yeah. Road movie. Kind of. Kind of. And like this time in watching it, it might just be through the jaundiced uh, lens of breakup goggles. But like, I was like, this is like a breakup movie. Uh-huh. Cause essentially someone forcibly removes themselves from your life. And like, they're, for all intents and purposes is dead to you, but they don't go anywhere. They're still there. They're still like in your space, literally in Morvan Keller. And then like, as you start to move on all of that, like moving forward is more or less based on a lie. And I was like, wow, that's like a, <laughs> that's, that might be a stretch for what, like, you know, I'm, I'm taking from it, but like, that's still was like interesting, a sort of interesting new level to experiencing that movie. But anyway, moving on. Well, I think she would love to hear that because that's what she's about from what I read about her when I see her in interviews is she wants the audience to be active in the way that you are. And you can fill in those gaps that she does not provide as a storyteller. You know, like if you're active and engaged the way you are, you get so much more out of it and it can mean that to you. But Joe, I I never thought of Morvan Cowler as a breakup movie, but I think you're absolutely right. And I'll even add quickly to that. It's also becomes about breaking up with a long friend, like your oldest best friend. It somehow becomes at the end where I'm like always reminded of like, oh yeah, this is a movie that ultimately sort of ends at a point where that feeling you have, if you've been friends with someone for a long time and you just know you're, you're, you've gone, you're going different places. One person wants to stay where they've been and the other has an opportunity to strike out and do something new. And one wants to take it. The other wants to stay where they're comfortable. That's inherently sad, but it's so vividly brought to life. And it's like the last five minutes of Morvan Caller, or, you know, there's a buildup to it, but it's, it's amazing. So it's a breakup movie on many levels. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think I don't think you are wrong, Joe. I think I think her filmmaking lends that stuff, to, you know, lends that kind of thinking. Yeah, like there's there's like a beautiful visual motif in the movie, too, where it's like light going in and out. Like it starts with like the Christmas tree in the apartment that uh, Morgan Cowler and her boyfriend share, where it's like the Christmas light is throbbing. So she's like falling in and out of darkness while she's taking in that like her her boyfriend is essentially gone forever. Like he's dead in front of her and like lights going on and off. And then like the movies movies concludes like with this hypnotic sequence of her walking through a crowd, which is like, you know, plays out earlier in the movie, but then concludes with it where it's like, there's a strobe going in and out and in and out. And like, you're just watching her drift in and out of light and darkness. And it's just like, it's so like, it's perfect. It's a perfect, just like visual representation of like the through line of the movie that we're always in and out of light. We're like in between life and death constantly. And like, she just like, she's also able to like nail these like legendary moments, you know, like there's something about Kevin Um, there. (laughs) There's something about like how she um, is able to access an emotional realism and kind of a, a stark gritty realism without being uh, having like a sense of like removal or boredom, like the way a sort of neorealist movie can, like, I don't think the Darden brothers are boring. I think they're awesome, but like, 
it as someone doing a lesser version of what they do, where it's like it's also ordinary and it's everyday life. Like she's able to nail an everyday life realism in terms of like the emotions of the characters and the sort of like set design of everything in in the world mm-hmm. while taking uh editing sound design maximizing it to this point of like almost near hallucination at times yeah. so it's this beautiful balance between stylization of a character's viewpoint matched with a gritty deep down reality and because like when you look at someone in the world you're not getting the whole picture if you're not representing how they see the world as well mm-hmm. you know and i think that's what like she does best and like that's what like elevates everything and makes it it borders on like hallucinatory at times even though it's capturing a stark reality yeah it's you know? like super stylish neorealism cuz she's got she she's from scotland she's a scottish filmmaker so she's got inherent she's sort of in her bones got that kitchen sink uh, you know, kitchen sink realism aesthetic or type of filmmaking is there. That's, you know, uh, very much associated with films from the UK, especially in the last 50 years. Like that's a whole yeah. pretty large subgenre of movies, but it's so elevated by the sensuality, by the things you're saying. The And another thing that hopefully could be um, something that will uh, warm some of our listeners to giving her a chance is like, Morvan Caller's the great example, but her soundtracks, like the, these are mm-hmm. just on a very surface, simple level. Her soundtracks are fucking incredible. And Morvan Caller is one of my all time favorite uh, film soundtracks because, or, and I play that at work. It's like my um, pre-show music for so many movies at the cinema. I love playing Morvan Caller and because it's just got this varied tones of music that all fit. And and then the movie even has this through line of like, it's a mixtape that she's listening to throughout the film mm-hmm. left by the, the boyfriend that killed himself. Um, so everything is just thought out and, and wonderful and, and just aestheticized. Like you'll hear the soundtrack like you would normally or like, uh, in a movie, but then sometimes it'll put you like, you'll hear it coming from the headphones that Morvan is listening to. So you're like, or you'll hear it like suddenly stop when she hits the stop button on her Walkman. Yeah. Which like, I feel like that's more common now, especially with digital editing techniques, making that stuff simpler. But you know, 2002, 2003 with Morvan Keller, like that's, that's pretty exciting, cool stuff. And she really dives into those uh, subtle uh, technical things that just elevate her, you know, mostly low budget movies, but just elevate them and make them feel large. And um, so hopefully, you know, you can't deny uh, that for, uh, for you were never really here. I mean, there's great soundtrack, like track cuts used in the, in the film, but Mm -hmm. you just, you cannot forget Johnny Greenwood, who is now becoming a collaborator with her because he scored Kevin as well, but man, his score in, you were never really here. Talk about elevating the movie, right? It feels like, it feels like the score at times is is the propulsive like score for what the movie on the surface is, which is like a pulpy exploitation sort of, um, almost like a '70s taxi driver riff. You know, that's how I think how a lot yeah. of people are describing this movie. But it really so even like that's kind of lazy. Yes. It's just to be like, well, it's a, a damaged, isolated man who tries to rescue like a young woman who's in like the peril of like, you know, and it's like in New York and it's in New York, New York. 
Yeah, and he's he's a veteran. Uh, he's a military vet. It, it is very lazy, and I think um, I noticed that when I watched um, when when these films go to Can Con or Can uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Lynn Ramsey. You know, they have to do uh, the the press like rounds. They have to do like a televised. Yeah. Uh, press thing for like 45 minutes and a lot of people right after the first screening a year ago at Cannes was like you know taxi driver taxi driver taxi and you you know Joaquin Phoenix is hilarious in these moments for many reasons Mm -hmm. because he fucking hates having to answer questions and talk about himself I saw that live in person on Friday oh man you'll have to fill me in uh, once I get done blabbing here because I want to know what he was like but he clearly he was like, no, we actually tried to do the opposite of Taxi Driver. Like he he wanted to um, demythologize, I think, the idea and break down the idea of the wounded male archetype that is the avenging hero. He he, and this movie does subvert so many of those tropes, which is yeah, yeah, it makes it very exciting as comparison to Taxi Driver, but it is a lazy comparison. There's a sequence that I think just you know in in execution it was it's directly going to mirror taxi driver. Like it comes in the middle point of you were never really here, but it's, he's essentially rescuing um, who becomes like the, the other star of the movie. Um, Nina, I think is the character's name, right? Um, He's going into rescue, like a young woman from like what is essentially a brothel, which like is mirroring uh, Travis Bickle going into rescue Jodie Foster's character and taxi driver. And so it's like that sequence, she visually subverts it by like, you know, she upends it upends the expectation that it's going to mirror this other film by like essentially that whole hallucinatory section of taxi driver where he's walking through and just like murdering everybody um, is done in a removed security camera footage montage, essentially in this one. And it's like, it, it owns its sense of like it it's it takes an entirely new approach that as much as it has energy and upending the expectation it's an entirely new way of like looking at you know the the violence that's happening and like you could hear it working on the audience like oh my god oh oh shit because it's like you're removed from it yeah and there's something kind of like horrifying and and helpless about that and it's like it's also very like it's very much a part of like a modern moment of how we like see horrifying things nowadays, you know, it's like through security camera footage. And um, I, I think that there's, there's a few moments that upend expect, not just a few, there are a ton of moments that yeah. upend expectations in this movie that like, that just have an, an energy all their own and like build to this place where you are getting these kind of like legendary moments that like she's known for like watching, Samantha Morton drift through a supermarket under these like giant uh, fruit signs, like to this, like to this incredible song playing on her Walkman. It's uh, some velvet morning morning with uh, Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. Such a good song. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And like, and then watching Joaquin Phoenix have these like mythic moments where it's like, there's a stark reality where the movie isn't too like it, it isn't, Every every stylization is for like sensory effect. It's not for like just empty stylistic effect. So when it hits these moments, like where you you get Joaquin Phoenix staring in a mirror or staring out a window, and you're just like, Shh, there's like it's such an energy to it that it's like it's generous. It was just like this is like the 
one of my favorite performances from him. And like, there's just something so perfectly balanced between a filmmaker really in charge of her craft, allowing an actor to be completely in charge of their craft, you know? And like, it's just like such a beautiful balance played out throughout you know they seem perfect for each other walking phoenix and and lynn ramsey i i really hope they get to and i i think they want to work more together i really hope that can happen because i would say he he's a great fit for her samantha morton is an amazing fit for her and tilda swinton and we need to talk about kevin is such a great fit for her so yeah the fact that she's getting even though it's you know, as we've said, it's been hard for her to get some of these movies off the ground and certain projects have fallen through. She's starting to get, you know, legit big name, like extremely artistic and well-respected actors to work with her, which will hopefully be what she needs to get more stuff off the ground. You know, you need that sort of cachet of yeah. it's not like Walking Phoenix puts butts in seats, but he's a name at this point and he's so respected and. The movies he's he's done lately, you just can't be denied, um, except for maybe that not very good Woody Allen movie he made a few years ago. But, you know, he can't, not everyone can be a home run, but he's he's undeniable as an acting talent and a force and uh, now a, a sort of personality. So, um, you know, having said that, w- was he was he lucid when when you guys uh, saw him talk? Did, did the, yeah, he was very polite you know, through a mildly inept Q and a moderator. And like, <laughs> it made me sad. Cause it was just like, you know, like the moderator asked like, you know, you have a very unconventional body type for most action heroes. And it was just like already, like the question wasn't even finished. And I was like, Ugh. and like, Joaquin Phoenix was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, when we, and it was just like, he was very polite and, and also lucid, but like, so he was trying, but I think it was just like the an uphill battle. Considering Q and A's are rough, you know, like they are. I think the smart thing that like uh, a lot of programmers do, like they did with a uh, good time, which is worth mentioning in sort of like uh, mm-hmm. in, in discussion with you were never really here, but like mm-hmm. good time they had kind of friends of the filmmakers come in like Selena Gomez was the Q and a moderator for when I saw good time in the dome. <laughs> nice. And like, she's, you know, to a lot of people's surprise, she's a giant film fan and like loved this movie. And so just went in kind of like, you know, she's like a peer with them. Cause she's an actress, you know, she probably hangs out with a lot of people that they know. And like, so there was like, there was a comfortability between them, which like, I think would just there, there, it would, benefit the actual Q and a experience. If there was somebody who had like an inroad with them already, you know, like, mm-hmm. like a, a peer just like, you know, talking them through it. I, but, I, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was just going to explain but, real quick if I could actually like, it's, yeah, it's please. unfortunate because we have directors sometimes come to where I work and, I think what happens is just just not enough fucking resources and planning involved in these things. And sometimes it would just fall on maybe someone that works at the cinema that admires the director or just is willing to do it and get in front of people. So, you know, it's too bad to to hear that. But I think you're right. There's it's so much better when it can be a sort of peer to elevate the discussion or, you know, like a really honed, respected critic like an Elvis Mitchell. I think you've been to some Q&As where he hosts them, right? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. That can be a little better usually, but you know, it, it happens. It's true. <laughs> I, I mean, people are just trying to do their best. 
Exactly. They're just trying to do their best. Yes. But uh, anyway, I, I did cut you off. What, where were you going from there? Uh, well, just in terms of like uh, you were never really here kind of I, th- I think was probably maybe shooting around the same time as Good Time. But like they, they definitely the Safdie brothers are similar in their approach of like having a stark reality that they depict with like elements of the filmmaking that heighten everything to this like near expressionistic level on top of like a gritty realistic approach. So like the music uh, by one Oh tricks point never in good time, the sort of like the propulsive energy of the, like the narrative in good time, like, you know, they're, they're pretty comparable to each other to like good time. And you were never really here that there's like this propulsive energy in both are both set in New York. And like, there's just like the sense of like this whirlwind energy. Um, there is an elegance and like some just flat out fucking beautiful photography, which, you know, good time has beautiful photography as well, but just in terms of like, there are, there's a moment and I don't want to give any of it away. Cause I think it's just like, it's so like beautifully realized and such a surprise as it's happening. But like there's, there's a sequence uh, towards the end of you were never really here. That's like so stunningly shot that it like made me cry both times. I've seen it now. Nice. Um, it's an underwater sequence. You know, which one I'm talking about. Oh, um, yeah. And yeah, there's just like, you know, I went to an exhibit yesterday um, that was basically like sets from the movie recreated in this space and stills from the movie. And the movie, as as much as like it feels like it's throwing you into this like gauntlet of a world, there still is like without being showy, beautiful images throughout the entire film, like just like stunning pictures that like just like that can hang on a wall and just like work on their in their own way, you know, like that, like th- this really is a sensory experience. Like it's beautiful to watch, horrifying to watch, like funny to watch, saddening to watch. And like it, but it's just like, it's the sensory experience. And like, she's, she's so adept at it and to give yourself entirely to it by sitting in a room being quiet in the dark is like really the best way to like get what she's giving you, which is so much, it's, it's, you know, it's well put. I mean, like, because it's why I would love for a nice new Blu-ray of Morvan Caller to come out or to get to see a film print of that someday. Cause I never got to see that in theaters. And, you know, that's a movie where, you know, you, you almost need to warn people. Like I try to, I recommend that movie to people, but you almost got to say like, look, the sound it's supposed to be that way. You're not going to understand for one, most likely their thick Scottish accents. You got to kind of work into it and, and lean in and, and listen and learn the way they talk. You know, there's that element, but also the sound, the dialogue is often less important than everything else. So she doesn't really seem to care if you hear the dialogue in that movie. I guess what I'm saying is this is all by design. This is not an inept filmmaker. I think it's easy for people to turn something like that off. They're like, I can't understand or hear them. You know, I, I had friends yeah. that did that when I said, watch Mormon Keller. It's one of my favorite movies of the two thousands, you know, and, and it's a hard sell in that way. Um, but you just, you, yeah, the theater like that, that ex- you just, you do have to meet it halfway at least. And, um, you know, but, Again, it's not like taking your vegetables. Her movies are not homework. And 
especially with the new one with you were never really here is like, this is a pulpy genre exercise from her and she hasn't really done genre yet, you know, and that this is such a unique take on a very like pretty well-worn type of movie at this point Mm -hmm. uh, that, that makes it exciting, but so does all the other elements. And, and just, there is a lot of movies like this, like sort of, if you want to lump them into like exploitation or, uh, you know, hitmen movies or whatever you want to like reduce them down to, they're often quite simple. They can be visceral and fun in their simplicity, but they're often like, yeah, I got I got what that movie was giving me with one time. Her movies, yeah. again, the reason that I can't wait to rewatch You Were Never Really Here and be traumatized and laughed and horrified. I, I go through all those emotions again is like there's so much more to take from the movie because it's got so much. I mean, on the same episode where we accused Spielberg of playing nice, I think I said about Isle of Dogs and Wes Anderson. He just is so densely packing his movies. Well, I, I take that back. I mean, Lynn Ramsey is truly the master of that. She is just like, just, there is so much packed into you were never really here. And yet it's like 88 minutes long. Um, she is, uh, and, and she makes it work. And like, she employs traditional elements like flashbacks and things that might ruin movies or kill the momentum. But her technique of it is so thoughtful and well honed and original that and so intuitive and so like yeah. immediate urgent. You that's know? a really good way to she is an immediate there's an immediacy to her filmic and that's why I think her style translates so well to cinema because cinema is immediacy. It's you're seeing what you're seeing every yeah. moment. You know, it's 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 very like literal and immediate in that way, but she finds ways to dig under that and there's more to it. And um yeah man, I I, I guess um I, I could talk about her in this film forever, but I, I, I hope it doesn't take this long for the next one because she had some big projects that sort of took a chunk of her life out and career where she didn't get to make a film. And um, in the after Morven Caller, it was she was going to make The Lovely Bones. I don't know if you remember this or, or knew that, but she yeah. was going to make that, but she only had read it before it was published. And then... Mm-hmm. It got published, became a massive bestseller, and then Peter Jackson got involved, and he made it, and that movie is fucking terrible. I'm sorry, but I would have loved to have seen what Lynn Ramsey would have done with it, because another element of her is she adapts books. Uh, Ratcatcher's original, but the other three films are all adaptations of books, and not having read any of them, I have heard that they are all very different, or the author's apparently have often liked what she did, but they view them as complementary to each other, not straight straight adaptation. So I would have loved to have seen her fuck with and make into her mold, something like the lovely bones. But Peter Jackson just, I think made a fairly straight adaptation. And it is, it's like, uh, do you remember that Robin William movies, uh, that Robin William movie? um, Yes. (laughs) It's like that dude. It's a If you want a double feature of just crap, sentimental filmmaking with bizarre darkness in it that isn't handled well go go with those ones so she she has these hiccups in her career where things have happened that that sidelined her for a while and after 
we need to talk about Kevin. She was, do you remember she was going to make that Western with Natalie Portman called Jane? Yeah. Got Jane, a got a gun. Yeah. And it ended up coming out and there was a lot of nasty, um, from what I've heard rumors put out by the producers that were pissed that she walked away from the movie, but she realized she wasn't going to, they were not going to let her make the movie she wanted to. And as we know, she wasn't going to make a straight up Western, you know? And right. if, if Natalie Portman is entrusting in that, in, like, cause that's Natalie Portman's project. So if she wants Lynn Ramsey, you gotta like, it's too bad that she can't like wield the power in that situation. Like it's, it's a, it's a fucked up reality of, of how Hollywood filmmaking happens sometimes. But, um, I do hope she gets a chance to even get more opportunities that, that, that do, uh, sort of, you know, like actually happen for her and just, we don't have to, you know, selfishly, I just, I don't want to wait. <laughs> I want more movies from her sooner. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, there, there seems to be such a like kind of disheartening trajectory with like filmmakers we like now, where it's like you know, we we see them make like a a movie that's kind of like critically praised, but like is never going to get the audience that like because the audience doesn't really exist anymore in terms of the theater going crowd. But mm-hmm. um, you know, like we see them then plugged into like commercial filmmaking which just innately like as as much as they can energize it with their own kind of spin and their own their own take on things there's just an inevitable marginalization that happens there's a a whitewashing that happens when they're plugged into a sort of broader context of commercial filmmaking so lynn ramsey is so signature so such a fucking gift to like people who like, you know, to, to just modern audiences, like, and like, I, as much as I want her to have all the opportunities possible, like, I don't want the end goal to be like, well, she's getting to make a, whatever the fuck it is, you know, like, pl- you know, a, a the star, star Wars. Wars. <laughs> yeah. So just is something in the sort of like Disney, Costco, Marvel universe, star Wars, um, like that's just that's not interesting to me and i don't think it's interesting to her and so like the the like we were talking about the audience needs to meet her halfway and like we're we're luckily in a period where you know a company like amazon is like really doubling down on like trying to make great movies by visionary filmmakers and there's like an effort you know especially like it's visible in Los Angeles right now where it's like, I saw the art exhibit, you know, they, they put it in the Cinerama dome because like, that's where a movie of this kind of stature and this kind of visionary quality, that's where it belongs. Mm. So there's an effort to place it where it belongs, but like, can audiences sustain it if they're just not showing up to see it, you know, like, Mm. and so we're in this moment where it's like, give it what it deserves, give it the attention it deserves, give it the sense of importance it deserves because it's, it's amazing. Like it's an amazing film. And like, I found myself (laughs) recommending it to a friend. Like he kept asking, like, what about this movie? Go see this instead. What about this movie? Go see this instead. Yeah. But what about this movie? No, go see. You were never really here immediately. So, yeah, I mean, this is just an, another flag we're planting just to to really urge people to see it as it's intended in the cinema, because, you know, like it will it's it's a gift. We're lucky to see it. We're lucky to be here to experience it. Fucking beautiful, man. Let's end it there. What do you think? OK, sounds good. <laughs> I, I really 
could just keep talking about Lynn Ramsey, man. And you know, there's more to come. She, she's just getting started. I feel like in so many yeah. ways. So the, like to say nothing of what happens, the ending of this movie, like <laughs> it knocked me over the first time and I couldn't wait to see it again and seeing it with like a giant crowd hearing it work on them. Like oh. so beautifully, like it was, it was, it was incredible. Oh man. That, that I well we'll see how big my crowd is probably not going to be very big when I get to see it in a theater here in Portland in a couple of weeks but uh, I will be there Friday first matinee I'm, I'm going to be at that first show as long as I uh, am free to do so and I, I can't wait for that's it her crowd, Friday matinee crowd I think that's, <laughs> that's going to be the biggest <laughs> there'll be some confused old people that just went to see the new art house release that day and uh, they'll probably walk out but maybe maybe I shouldn't maybe they'll maybe they'll like it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna yeah, keep the benefit of the doubt. Who knows? Yeah, keep the optimism as much as we can. All right, man. Well, uh, why? Let's let's do it. Let's wrap it up. Um, go fucking see this movie. It's so amazing. Um, support support it. Support a great film and film uh, and filmmakers. So just chill to the next episode. Uh, so let's wrap up episode 173 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find all our episodes and those of our um, our friends of other podcasts at the Playlist Podcast Network. Just go to theplaylist.net, click on the podcast tab, you'll find them all there. Uh, you can reach uh, us at Adjust Your Tracking, me and Joe, uh, where? The, I, we got that Facebook page, but uh, what about that email that people can reach us out with, Joe? Uh, adjust your tracking at gmail.com. You can call me at 503. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Be careful, man. Uh, people, people will find that number, Joe. You're going to get calls. That's true. That's <clears throat> Google. It can't be that hard. I mean, there's probably some creepy service. It's like, you want Joe Von Oppen's number? I'll give it to you. Oh, this sounds good. <laughs> well, we would. Have a- all conversation <laughs> Joe would not be thankful if you did that but uh, I'm certainly thankful to get to talk with you Joe and I keep emphasizing your name Joe because hey Walking Phoenix he's Joe in that movie it's that True. movie it, it's it's so relatable he's even got your name yeah it's I not- love Jelly Bean <laughs> nice alright well thanks for talking to me today buddy thank you Sticking with you Cause I